Let's open our Bibles now to Romans chapter 10. It is the best time of the week to gather together with the saints, with the church, and not, and not, just, not just some church, this church, th- this people that we are committed to and connected to, to, to sing together glorious truths about our God, to open his word together. There is nothing better than this. We are in Romans chapter 10, continuing on our study in this great epistle. We are picking up where we left off last week. That has us in verse 14. So hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this good, pure, perfect gift that you have given to us. Thank you that by your spirit, working through your word, you have called us from death to life. You've transformed us from the kingdom of darkness to light. By your spirit, working through your word, you cause deaf ears to hear and blind eyes to see and dead hearts to live. And I pray this morning that you would accomplish all of your good purposes by your spirit through your word in us and among us. That, Lord, you would call even this morning those who are dead in sin to live in Christ. Those whose growth has been stunted by sin, call them to repentance. Each one of us transforming us more and more into the likeness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Romans chapter 9, we heard from our brother Paul that God is sovereign over all things and that that sovereignty extends to salvation, that salvation is initiated by God. Salvation is according to God's eternal purpose of election, Paul says, and that salvation is accomplished by God from start to finish. Salvation's Roman 9 tells us is completely up to God. It's predestined according to the eternal foreknowledge of God, acting solely according to the counsel of his own electing decree and not at all in response to our actions or our will. And then just as our minds are swimming with all of that that Paul has to say to us, perhaps very challenging for some of us to hear those words from Paul, Just as we start to fill our mind with questions, just when we're tempted to be fatalistic or apathetic even, thinking, well, God's going to do whatever God wants to do anyway, so what does any of it matter? What does it matter if we pray? What does it matter if we evangelize? What does it matter what I do? Why even care? Just as our minds start to fill with these questions, we come to chapter 10. And halfway through chapter 10, Paul's going to stop us in our tracks if we're asking those kind of questions. Because now he says, you must tell the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you don't, 
they will never, ever come. So in chapter 9, he's told us it's all of God. God initiates it. God, God chooses his own people, and God sovereignly saves them through no human activity whatsoever on our part that could earn us anything. And now in Romans chapter 10, Paul says, and if you don't take the gospel to them, none of them will ever be saved. How do we resolve this apparent contradiction? How do we wrap our minds around it so that we can understand it perfectly and don't have any questions anymore? The answer is, we don't. We don't need to wrap our minds around this contradiction because there is no contradiction. And secondly, to fully understand such a thing is well beyond our meager human abilities. The Bible really does teach that God is 100% sovereign. He does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants. He never needs anyone's permission. There's no prior activity on our part that will stimulate God into action. That sovereignty does, the Bible teach, extend to our salvation. It is all of God. That repeated phrase in Scripture, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Bible also teaches the will and responsibility of man. We must come. We must repent. We must believe. Charles Spurgeon said this, to deny election and free will is to lose your soul and to try to understand it is to lose your mind. I think that's true. The, the deeper we dig, the more our questions come. The bigger we see God is. The truth is, according to Scripture, God from eternity past chooses who are His. To use the biblical word, He elects them. He sets His saving love upon them, and they will come to Him and be saved. It is a 100% sure thing. All of the elect, all of those whom God sets His saving love on in eternity past will come to Him. John 6, chapter 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. That's absolutely true. All of those given to the Son by the Father will for sure come to him. And here's what's also true. If the church doesn't take the gospel to the world, Paul says they'll never come. They'll, without the proclamation of the gospel, no one will ever believe. No one will ever come. These individuals given to the Son by the Father will not come to him without gospel proclamation. Both things are true. Jesus' statement that they surely will come, and he is no liar, and Paul's statement that they will never come without the gospel being preached to them, and Paul's no liar either, at least not when he's writing scripture. Both things are true. We depend on God entirely for our salvation, Romans chapter 9 says, and God has, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, made us his fellow workers in that. We must take the gospel or the elect will never come. Does that make your brain hurt? It should. Salvation is all the work of God and the sovereign God has chosen to use people. God, God always works through means. Whatever it is that he's doing, he's working through some means. And so God ordains the ends, salvation, for this group of people, and he ordains the means by which they will achieve those ends, the proclamation of the gospel to those people. And so in this passage, Paul's going to show us five steps leading to this eternal salvation. 
That's what we're going to be looking at here. And the first is a preacher must be sent by God. Look at verse 14. Well, back up to verse 13, just to give us this running start into this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him? Paul Paul gives us this, this list of questions. How will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? In other words, if people never hear the gospel, they will never call on Christ and be saved. And you might think as we hear these words, definitely, these other countries out there, we need to send missionaries, we need to send evangelists into these other countries that have never heard the word of God, but surely he's not talking about this country. Surely everyone here in America knows the gospel. Well, yes, we should be sending missionaries all the way around the world. There are places in this world where people have never heard the name Jesus. They've never heard of him before. And so we must send missionaries all the way around the world. But the truth is, one of the greatest mission fields in the world, and one that other nations are beginning to send their missionaries to, is this one. America is one of the greatest mission fields in the whole world. Our culture has become so thoroughly secularized that many people have never heard the gospel. But not only that, many of our churches are proclaiming a false gospel. So there are many, many people living among us who who may know some of the basics of the gospel story as we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the true gospel, good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, they do not know it. They have not heard it. The reality is people here don't know the gospel. Not the true gospel anyway. Many have never really heard it accurately. Or they've never heard the truth spoken in love. Maybe they've heard true statements spoken in self-righteousness, or true statements spoken in anger, or distorted half-truths and perversions of the gospel, but not the full, pure, undiluted gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ, clearly and passionately and graciously given in love. Many have never heard that. I know this because people come and visit the church And they say, I've never heard that message before. I've been in church for 25 years. We don't talk about this stuff. Many have never heard. And so, yes, we need to take the gospel to the whole world. Christ commands it of us. We must have people who are willing to go into frontline missions in foreign nations. But most of us are not going to Papua New Guinea or even Canada. For most of us, friends, America is our mission. We live in a nation, we live in a culture that is in full-scale rebellion against the God who created it and the God who will judge us. And they will never repent and believe unless someone speaks the truth of the gospel to them in love. And many of them have never heard it. We need to realize here that, that Paul's pointing his finger at us here with this question. Actually, we need to feel the weight of this. Christian, Paul's pointing his finger at you. Feel that. He's pointing his finger at you. And he says to you, how will they hear without someone preaching? 
In other words, someone must be sent by God to deliver the gospel, or it's impossible for a person to hear, which means it is impossible for a person to believe. This Greek word here, preaching, caruso, it just means to proclaim, to, to herald a message. That's not what, just what's happening here in the pulpit right now. That is what's happening here in the pulpit. But it's more than that. It's inclusive of any time the gospel is presented, spoken, read, printed, in a podcast, a video. Anytime the gospel is sung, there's a heralding going on. There's a proclamation going on. And the point is that no one is going to be saved simply by looking at your life and seeing that you're a wonderful person. That's not going to do the trick. No one is going to be saved because of a random act of kindness that you have done or because you're really sweet. Your life is going to demonstrate your faith, of course. The the gospel's effects in your life will be reflected in the way you live, but your life cannot preach the gospel because the gospel is a message. It's a message with specific content. The gospel must be preached or no one will be saved. And so Paul asks in the second half of verse 15, how will they preach though unless they're sent? The truth is God must send workers into the harvest. He must send people out to proclaim and to to herald the gospel. Don't forget, God works through means. He doesn't just ordain the ends that people will be saved. He ordains the way they will be saved by commanding you to go. What are the means by which God sends preachers? The means by which he sends workers into the harvest. It's the church. It's the local church. The local church is the means by which God sends workers into the harvest. It is the reason that God has given pastors and elders to the church. They are, in a sense, custodians of the gospel. They are gifts to the church from the risen Christ. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You see, it's not pastors and elders who are the ones that are taking the gospel to the whole world. That's too much work for them to do. There's no way they could do that. It's to equip the saints, and then all the saints are commanded to go to take the gospel, to be heralds, to proclaim it. I consider pastoral ministry a high and holy calling. And there are many aspects to this calling, but there is none more important than this, to preach and teach the living word of God so that the saints of God will be equipped to carry out the work of the ministry. There's nothing more important that I could do. Nothing more important I could devote my time with. When I was asked to be the pastor of this church, I told them, what I have to offer you, should I come, is teaching. It's preaching. It's doctrine. That is the most important thing I could offer you, and it is the central thing I am offering you if I'm my pastor. There's nothing more important than that. And of course, there's all kinds of other things that we're doing, but nothing more important than this. This is the call. This is the reason there are pastors and and, and elders. The pastor is not the professional who's hired by the church to do the work of ministry. He's the shepherd who feeds the members of the church by faithfully teaching the whole counsel of the word of God so that they will be equipped to do the work of ministry. 
Because the truth is, God is sending every one of us to carry this gospel to the world. How will they believe? How will they believe unless someone preaches? It's the first step. God must send this preacher. Second step, the preacher must proclaim the true gospel. It goes on in verse 15. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. In the ancient world, if a king wanted to get his message out to the many subjects living across the empire, he would send heralds. He would send these messengers out who had the king's proclamation, his message, and the herald did not have any right to change the message. The herald did not arrive at a town and say, I think these people aren't going to like this part. I'm going to emphasize this over here, and I'm not going to talk about this over here. No, no, no. This message doesn't belong to the herald. It's the king's message, and you don't get to change it. You don't get to add to it. You don't get to take away from it. You don't apologize for what the king has said. You proclaim what he has said clearly, straightforwardly. And if you tamper with the king's message, it means your death. Well, in the same way, this gospel message belongs to God. It's not our message. It's his message. It is his word. And so we are not free to make up our own messages. We are not free to add to or take away from his message. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul pronounces anathema, the curse of God on, on any preacher who tampers with the word of God. Consider that when we think of all the false teaching that is surrounding us, that is floating around out there, what it is that God's word says about those preachers who are delivering those messages. Paul, Paul gives us a powerful message of what this saving message is, a powerful picture that he gives in Galatians chapter 3. He's angry with the Galatians because they have so quickly turned aside to false teaching, but he says this in chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And here it is, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, the Galatians were not present when Jesus was crucified. What is Paul saying? When the gospel is rightly proclaimed, it is just as powerful as having witnessed Christ's crucifixion in person with our own two eyes. And the good news of the gospel is this. Christ's death is just as efficacious for our sin as it would have been if we'd been standing at the foot of the cross as well. Praise God. But, but for this to happen, for Christ to be portrayed as crucified before people's eyes, the preacher must proclaim the same gospel that Paul preached. We can't preach a different message than Paul was preaching and make that same claim. We must preach that mankind is dead in sin and rebellion and moral depravity, that mankind is under the just, righteous, good, fair condemnation of a holy God. That the sinless Son of God took on human flesh and lived sinlessly and died in our place to atone for our sin, to, to bear our wrath that we deserved, that he was raised from the dead for our justification, and that, that faith alone is the means by which his perfection is credited to us and we are saved. That's the good news that we have to proclaim. That's God's message. Must be declared faithfully because that gospel alone has the power of God for salvation. Not, not this made up human gospel of you're all wonderful people, you're trying very hard, I understand. Keep trying hard and be sincere, and God's going to count that. 
Oh, that message has no power to save. That message can only damn. No, it's the true gospel that has the power for salvation. No psychology, no politics, no human philosophy can save. All the religions of the world combined together cannot save a single person. Only the gospel of God concerning his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has the power of God to save people from their sin. The gospel of the kingdom is this. Jesus Christ is king. He is risen. He rules. He is putting his enemies under his feet. And so we must urge people, stop being his enemy. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Christ sends us as heralds with this message. The the, the message is his. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. He says to his disciples, carrying his message. If they hear you, they're actually hearing me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Leon Morris in his commentary says, Christ is present in the preachers. To hear them is to hear him. John Calvin similarly said, the gospel doesn't fall from the clouds like rain by accident. It is brought by the hands of men to the place God has sent it. Consider the account in Acts chapter 10 of Peter and Cornelius. God has chosen to save Cornelius, a Gentile. Cornelius is a a God-fearing man, we're told in Acts. He does all kinds of good works. He desires to follow God, and yet he remains in need of salvation because there is something missing from him. How did God save Cornelius? He sent Peter. He sent Peter to preach to Cornelius and his household. Now, this this story is miraculous. It's got visions and angels and, and prophecies and all kinds of things going on. But at the end of the day, it's not an angel who goes to Cornelius. It's Peter. When they recount to the council of Jerusalem the salvation of this Gentile, we actually get this piece of information that Cornelius is told, Peter will come and Peter has a message that will save you. The preacher must be sent. The preacher must preach the true gospel. And so Paul says, those who do that, those who who carry the gospel, who herald the gospel, have beautiful feet. What a weird thing to say. Feet are awful. He's quoting Isaiah. Isaiah, speaking of the messengers who brought the news that the days of captivity in Babylon were over. That your bondage to this kingdom of darkness is done. And so Paul applies that message to the church, the message, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that the church has been sent to carry. And he says, our good news is similar. Our good news is this. Your slavery to the kingdom of darkness has completely enveloped you. You can't even see the light because of your darkness, but I come proclaiming freedom. I I come to bring release. You can be liberated. The power of God in the Lord Jesus Christ can deliver you. R.C. Sproul in his commentary on Romans talks about the imagery of, of the feet and the runner who would come to report news on the battlefront. 
He would come back to the city, and, and standing on the city wall, the lookout would be constantly watching, and from a long ways off, he would see this runner with the news approaching the city. And as the runner approached the city, the lookouts were able to tell if he was coming with good news or bad news simply by watching his feet, simply by looking at the way he ran. The feet of the runner would reveal the kind of news he had. If it was bad news, if there had been a great loss, if there had been a defeat, his steps were heavy. His stride was cumbersome, but if he had good news, his feet were flying. The dust was kicking up. He was running with joy. He was running with excitement. It was the most beautiful sight that lookout could see, to see a runner approaching joyously with feet that were flying and as he saw him from, from a long ways off, to see that sight brought, brought joy. It was, it was beautiful to see that because he knew that runner had very, very good news. Friends, God has, has appointed us as heralds of the greatest message in the universe. There is nothing better. No one has any better news. No one has any more important news than the news that you, Christian, carry. There's no greater privilege in the world than to obey Christ's command to take God's message of salvation to the world. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, preaching the gospel is the most important thing under the sun. There's nothing more important than to be a herald, a preacher of the good news. So God must send the preacher. The preacher must preach the true gospel. The third step in Salvation is people must hear the good news. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? The preacher must be sent. He must be preaching the truth of God, but that is not enough for salvation. People must hear the gospel to be saved. When the gospel is preached, Christ himself is preaching. And so we must listen very carefully to the word of God. Verse 17, Paul says, so faith comes from hearing. Hearing through the word of Christ. This is what the proclamation of the gospel is, but by, consider the glory of this. A, a, a nerd, a loser like me can proclaim the gospel of Christ and it is Christ who's speaking. Praise God. I could never get into this pulpit if I didn't believe that. I'd look at myself in the mirror on Sunday and go, I'm getting back in bed. I'm not fit. When the gospel is proclaimed, Christ is both the speaker and the content of what's being spoken. The sinner must hear the word of Christ. They must hear Christ himself. This word, to hear, is, is central to this passage. It's six times in this passage, if we count verse 18 in with it. When the gospel is preached, people must hear it. And here's what happens for, for people to hear. When the, when the gospel is faithfully preached, the Holy Spirit causes the elect sinner to hear with new spiritual ears and to actually understand the gospel. Those who are spiritually dead cannot understand the gospel. It is an offensive message. A sinner must be born again by the Spirit of God. He must have a new heart and a new mind if he is ever going to hear and understand the gospel. But when the gospel is proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit effectually 
calls the dead to life. It's the means by which God calls the elect to salvation. They are raised by the voice of Christ himself, not by a persuasive preacher, not by somebody who's got all their points starting with the same letter or something. We've got a slick presentation. No, it's the voice of Christ in the gospel calling to the sinner, commanding them to live, just like Jesus outside the tomb of Lazarus. He doesn't say, oh, Lazarus, won't you please come? The musicians here are going to sing. We've got a hymn prepared. We'll sing it as long as it takes. Won't you come? No, he said, Lazarus, come forth. That's what Jesus does. He commands life. Praise God. It's the voice of Christ who calls out in the gospel. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When the voice of Christ goes forth by the Spirit through the preacher, it goes forth with divine purpose. It is always accomplishing God's purposes when the gospel is proclaimed. It is either going to make us alive or it is going to condemn us for our deadness. But it is accomplishing God's intended purposes as it goes forth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 that, Those who proclaim the gospel are the fragrance of life to those who are being saved and the stench of death to those who are perishing. It's the same gospel accomplishing two opposite effects. Spurgeon said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same gospel that melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. The truth is, if you are here this morning hearing my voice unrepentant, refusing to yield your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will leave this room harder than you came in. Your heart is hardening even now as the gospel is being proclaimed. Some hear the word and are saved. Others have no spiritual ear to hear the voice of Christ. Those who are being saved hear the gospel with great delight. The unregenerate cannot hear it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly, foolishness to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Friend, today, hear his voice. You understand that if you have, have breath... God has sovereignly brought you to this place to hear the gospel preached. Don't harden your heart. Hear his voice. Call on his spirit to cause you to hear the voice of Christ in the word proclaimed. Fourth thing, people must not just hear the good news of the gospel, they must believe the good news. Verse 14 again, how they call on him and who they have not believed. Verse 16 says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? 
In our preaching of the gospel, the disease is diagnosed and the cure is offered. Both things must happen. But, but no one is going to be healed unless they take the cure in the prescribed manner. It, it, it must be. If you had the elixir of life and all someone had to do was drink it and they would live forever... It would do you no good to go out to Maple Grove Cemetery and stand there in the cold and yell, come and get it, boys. Here it is. All you got to do is drink this and you're going to live again and you're going to live forever. Well, it would do no good. They have no power to come. It also wouldn't do any good for you to go to the hospital. And to watch people take the elixir from your hand and then rub it on their chest like a topical cream. No, because the prescribed method is to, to drink it. It would do no good to watch them stare at it until they felt something change in them. No. No, that's not how this works. It would only be effectual if it was taken the right way. For salvation to occur, the preacher must be sent by God. He must preach the true gospel. People's ears must be opened by the Holy Spirit, and they regenerate it so that they can respond so that they can believe, so that they can call on Him. And if these things happen, they'll be saved. This is what Paul tells us here. If these things happen, they'll be saved. Last week we talked about these, these three components to saving faith. The right information. Remember they had those Latin words, notitia. The right information. We have to agree with that information. A census. Agreement. But then we must move beyond that and entrust our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. What they called fiducia in the Reformation. Remember the context of what Paul's saying here. Remember, Paul's been talking in Romans 9 and 10 about why it is that the majority of the Jews are outside the camp when it comes to salvation. All these promises that God has made. And yet it's these chosen people to whom God first revealed himself who find themselves outside. And he's addressing why it is that the vast majority of Jews have find the, finding themselves outside salvation. And so he's, he's asking all these questions as a way of revealing there's been zero failure on God's part here. What is the failure? Paul shows us in this passage what's going on with their heart. Preachers have been sent. They have heard the message they know the truth, but they refused to believe the Messiah. They would not do it. And because they refused to believe the Messiah, they refused to call on God and be saved. They have not, as Paul said, obeyed the gospel. The, the, the one who believes will obey will obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And that first step of obedience is to call on Him. It's to turn from sin. God has joined together faith and obedience. Paul does it here in this passage. God has joined these two things together, faith and obedience. The one who truly believes in Jesus will obey Him. And the one who refuses to obey has false faith. It's not saving faith that they have. Because genuine faith produces obedience in us. It's a sure fruit, a 
of salvation. In other words, to use a language common to many people, you cannot have Jesus as Savior and not Lord. Sometimes people say that foolish statement. Jesus is my Savior, but he's not yet my Lord. And what they mean is, I won't bow my knee. I will continue to sin the way I want to sin. Friends, it does not work that way. It never works that way. There are even segments of the church who want to, want to argue for that, and so they say, well, that's called lordship salvation. We don't believe in that. There is no other salvation than the one who proclaims with their mouth and their life that Jesus is Lord. You must submit your life before him in obedience. This is the sure fruit of genuine salvation. It doesn't save you, but if you will not do it, it proves that you've not been saved. In Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul spoke of the obedience of faith. Or consider the Great Commission in, in Matthew 28. As Jesus sends his disciples to the world, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's obey. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always. Obedience and belief are two sides of the same coin. You don't get the one without the other. You never get genuine obedience without genuine faith. Paul tells us that which does not originate from faith is sin. That's not real obedience, even if you're a law keeper. And you don't have genuine faith if you will not obey. The Jews did not believe Jesus, so they were disobedient. Verse 21, he says, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Oh, friends, God is, he is still holding out his arms. He is still holding out his arms to wicked rebellious sinner. His arms are open wide, welcoming all who will come, all of those who will repent and believe. None are beyond his grasp. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Paul says here in verse 13. That's still true. His arms are still open wide. And so that's the fifth step. People must call on the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Paul says in verse 13, will be saved. People must call on the name of the Lord, and it won't do to hide behind excuses. It won't do, well, I, I really paid attention when we went through Romans 9 and all that talk of election and God choosing people before the foundation of the world, and how do I even know if I'm one of those people? How do I know if my loved ones are those people? So I, I, I don't think I need to call on him. I don't think I need to proclaim the gospel to them because who, who knows? We may not be elect. Friend, we don't have insight into the eternal decrees of God. God didn't reveal to us, I choose from the foundation of the earth, and here's a long list of names. No, that's not how it works. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about whether you're elect, and you don't have to worry about whether your loved ones are elect. You have to call on the name of the Lord. And you have to proclaim the gospel to them and tell them to call on the name of the Lord. That's our part. We don't concern ourselves with God's eternal decrees. They are too big for us. Oh, it won't do to be fatalistic. God will not take that excuse from you. 
it's not enough to, to understand and agree with everything that the Bible says. It's not enough to even agree with all the particulars of the gospel. Even the devil believes, and he shudders. It doesn't save him to believe because it's only that ascensus. It's only mere intellectual assent. It is not saving faith. Faith is trust. Faith is believing into the Lord Jesus Christ, calling on the name of the Lord, being united with Christ. It is saying, Jesus is Lord. More than that, Jesus is my Lord. I bow my knee before him. It's, it's taking up our cross. It's following him. There is no saving faith apart from this. This is the sure result. This is what it looks like to have saving faith. And then all of those who are saved by the gospel are commanded by God. Christian, you are commanded by God to carry the gospel, to be a herald of the gospel, a proclaimer of the gospel, to take this saving gospel to those who are racing as hard and as fast as they can for hell. So just close this morning with this question. Who would the Lord have you talked to this week? It won't do us any good to sit around and talk about how we are called. The Lord must send messengers to the world. Yes, I hope he does send those messengers to the world. Not me, I'm busy. I got a lot going on. Not me, I got jobs. I'm rooted here in this community. There's no room for that. This community needs you as a herald. This Topeka, this little religious community needs to hear the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the very first time for many people. Who would the Lord have you talk to this week? Ask him that prayerfully. Who do you know? Who do you love that is God's enemy, that is lost and dying and a breath away from eternal judgment that they have brought upon themselves. Who do you know? Who would the Lord have you talk to this very week as a herald? I'll just tell you one great opportunity. Next Saturday morning at 10 a.m., we're going to stand in one of the darkest places this world has to offer. 10 a.m., Church of Whole Women's Health. Whole Women's Health is actively murdering the most helpless among us. And we have a chance to call out to people to stop being God's enemies. It's a great place to start. If you don't know where to start, if this whole thing's scary to you, come be a part of a group right there. But who would the Lord have you herald this truth to this week? Christian, he commands you. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, this gospel, this glorious, saving gospel that you have given to us is beyond our comprehension. Your kindness to us, your mercy to us, your power to save. Lord, we rejoice in this saving gospel that says the Lord Jesus Christ not only died in our place, but he rose again, that he is reigning in glory right now, that he is putting his enemies under his feet. And so our eternity is sure and it is secure and we rest in you and we hope in you. But Lord, even as our spirits rest in you, we ask you 
by your Spirit to cause us to put our hands to the plow for your kingdom's sake, to wring ourselves out for your kingdom's sake, to not hide behind the walls of our houses or this beautiful church building that you have provided us with, but to intentionally be equipped to do the work of ministry for your kingdom, for the sake of those who are lost and dying, for the eternal joy of your people, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.